Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Today I'm joined by two very special guests, Chief Troy Ruggles and Prescott Nadu. We're going to be talking about training and how to make training something that's valuable for everybody. Chief, welcome to the podcast. We're going to just tell the listeners a little bit about how you got started in the fire service and kind of how we got where you're at today. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been a, I've been in the fire service for for many years. I started out as a at a very young age uh, in in a high school program. Worked my way up into a career uh, over in St. Johnsbury, uh, up, working up through to become fire chief. Uh, spent a lot of years there, and the opportunity presented itself to uh, come to Burlington to be the battalion chief of training and safety. So I. Uh, I took a chance at that, and they uh, they've had me for a couple of years now, and uh, and it's great. Uh, I, I I like training. I enjoy training. I've been training with the Vermont Fire Academy for over twenty over twenty years, and and just about uh, seventeen or eighteen years with the Hampshire Fire Academy. So it's a part of what I do. I love it. I enjoy uh, getting uh, new firefighters into this uh, into this great profession. Yeah, and you just started a few new ones, is that right? You're kind of just jumping into a whole new batch, right? We are just starting with a whole new batch of seven uh, this week. Day two was today. Very exciting. Prescott, welcome to the show. We've always wanted to have you on, and you're doing some training in Wilson, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having me. So talk a little bit about how how did you get started? How, how are we sitting here today? And we're actually sitting in a garage, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Lovely garage. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Glad I cleaned it out. Uh, so uh, we are sitting here today because I uh, have a true passion for training that started pretty much when I first became a firefighter, um, and then very shortly after that an EMT. Um, I realized the benefit of training because I had both good and bad experiences pretty early on in my uh, time as a volunteer, um, which was with Williston, and then I progressed in 2010. I got hired as a career firefighter with Williston as well. Um, and then just, I guess, a little over two years ago, um, I transitioned. There was some roles that got shifted around in my department, and one of those roles was that of training officer. Um, so it's a little interesting. I'm a senior firefighter by rank, uh, but I'm currently doing the role of the, the training officer um, for the most part. There's you know, a lot of data entry and various and sundry things, but what I think I love the most is the ability to uh, coordinate trainings for both our on-call staff um, and for our career staff as well. That's afforded me a lot of great opportunities um, and to pursue that passion for training, which, like I said, has existed uh, since I got in the fire service. Yeah, so we're really excited to hear your perspectives on some things here. It is worth noting that both of you gentlemen work in a fire-based EMS system. Um, Chief, I know you spent some time in St. Jay. Was there a lot of EMS training that was happening over there? I know you didn't have an ambulance, but did you still have to accomplish any sort of EMS stuff? Absolutely. We, uh, we ran a first responder service with a transport service being a private ambulance. So absolutely, it was a part of, uh, it made up a big part of our, our activity level. Uh, and thus made a big part of our, of our training requirements that, uh, that the members had to do. So with you two very high caliber individuals here, a lot of the training stuff we're going to be talking about is more theory-based. It's going to be how to deliver training, how to make it successful. And for those of you that are listening, if you're not a firefighter, you're not in a fire-based EMS system, hopefully you'll still be able to take some things away from this podcast. It's not just going to be all firefighters and hook hitters. We're going to be talking about some EMS too. So, um, the first thing I want to jump into is the actual planning of the training. And my first question, we'll start with you, Chief Ruggles, is how do you pick what to focus on? How do you choose what you want to do for training? 
Yeah, so obviously I, I'm an EMT and have been for, uh, for many years. And uh, especially in, in Burlington, uh, we have a paramedic level service that we deliver. So we, we have to cater our training around um, the, the involvement of paramedics, AEMTs, as well as the basic EMT. So when I, when I looked at the program, I felt it was important. We have a certain number of runs that we do every day. That the, that the members are doing every day. They're proficient at it, they're doing every day, they're good at it. Uh, we have good oversight, we have good people uh, doing good work. And <clears throat> one of the things that I've always looked at when we talk about training is, what are the things that we're not doing every day? And if I can steal a, a point from uh, Gordon Graham and his uh, high-risk, low-frequency events, that's exactly how we base a lot of our training is, I want our guys training on the items that we don't do every day, that the more, the more um, uncommon calls uh, where, the, where the risks are high and that they're not faced with every day. So I reached out to our paramedics. I reached out to some of our members, and, I, and I, we came up with a list of, of different items from pediatric traumas to, um, well, any number of things, trauma specifically, uh, medical emergencies, uh, that are the uncommon ones, uncommon ones, and that's how we've built out our program. And the other thing we did <clears throat> when we're looking at that is instead of making a PowerPoint presentation, uh, we made it hands-on, and we did as much as we could scenario-based uh, to, to keep the members actively engaged. That's a huge point, and I know we've talked before, and I went to school for communication. I do a ton, a ton of presentations, and for me, there's nothing that drives me more nuts than when you have a trade-based service being trained through PowerPoint. I think it's really there's really a big disparity between when you're learning something either in a video lecture or in a PowerPoint lecture, and then you ask them to perform the actual hands-on skill, and there's the lack of understanding or completion. I think that's something that can be easily rectified by exactly what you just said, by training how we're going to be expected to perform. Uh, absolutely, and the other thing it does is that it, 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 it makes those members who are standoffish about engaging in some of those specific skills that we all need to be efficient at and proficient at, um, and the way we do it with scenario base is that they're actively involved. So a member of an engine company who may not be uh, the first one in uh, getting their hands dirty, if you will, uh, during our scenario based has got to be actively involved. They've got to be a part of the team. Yeah, great point. So Prescott, let's spin over to you. So let's say you're in charge of coming up with a training, which I know you do all the time. Can you give us an example of something that is a high risk, low frequency event? And what would you do to create a training for it? Have you done anything recently like that? What would you do? Uh, sure. So I think, uh, again, it's Firebase, just, you know, an EMS one will probably come to me. But one of the things that we had done recently um, in the news a number of months ago was a rescue that took place. I believe it was just down south. Um, a, a victim jumped out of a third story window um, or dropped their baby out and, and uh, unfortunately didn't make it out themselves. And so we studied that video as a shift. And then I brought it to the oncoming shift the next day. Um, and what we ended up doing was realizing that that is an absolutely very low frequency and very high risk situation is how would we encounter, uh, if we encounter that situation, how would we handle that? 
So studied the video a bunch, and then as a shift we got together, and actually my lieutenant took the charge on this one and said, you know what, we're gonna um, we're gonna take these guys by surprise. So we, uh, although this doesn't work in every situation, in this case, after we had discussed it as a shift, tossed out some ideas, and actually got input from some other shifts as well, um, the other two shifts, we one day we're drinking coffee at the at the kitchen table, uh, and then it was go time, and our lieutenant said this is your scenario and go. And it was the exact same scenario. Um, he got the off going shift to be sort of the, the victim and have a, a mannequin as a, as a baby, that kind of thing. Um, and what came from that was uh, the fact that we did not know about it. Um, my lieutenant and the off going shift were the only ones to know about it. So it brought that stress into it, which you can only replicate either in the real thing or doing a, a sort of a semi-surprise scenario like that. So um, that was an example of um, adding not just, uh, you know, the I guess the quote-unquote PowerPoint. It wasn't a PowerPoint, but the discussion first, so we weren't completely taken off guard. Um, but then once we got into the scenario itself, the hands-on version of that, a lot of really good training tips came from that because of the added stress and what that did to um, the scenario. Yeah, and that sounds just like what Chief Ruggles was talking about because it would be great if we had a phone call 30 minutes before the call came in, but that's not always the case, obviously. So having a training scenario where you're expected to perform in an environment where you're not necessarily prepared is a really good way to replicate the real calls and, you know, practicing like we play. I know when I was on probation, it was not uncommon for a, you know, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. hose line stretch just to see if I could process that. You know, if you're in your pajamas and you're reading your book and then you need to stretch a hose to the basement, can you adjust and change from where your head is at into getting engaged in that drill. So Chief, something I want to touch on here is I know you're also responsible for putting out the safety bulletins and usually those are um, inspired by some sort of incident. Is that right? Uh, many times, yes. So something I'm interested in is at what point does QA or QI either on EMS incidents or fire incidents lead into something that you identify as an objective for training? So is there ever a situation where a problem's identified on the fire ground or on an EMS call and you as a training chief realize that that's an area that can be approved upon? And when you take that incident and you apply it into a training scenario, how do you do that gently so that you can learn something from it and all the guys don't get super angry and feel like you're critiquing them, chasing them around and um, picking apart every single thing they do. Is there a balance to that? There absolutely is a balance, but I think uh, I think we got two parts to that. And, and if if I could, um, you're absolutely right that we use uh, the events, the the incidents that occur uh, every day in the city, to uh, the ones that went well and the ones that didn't uh, that we could have done a lot better uh, to decide on and have decided on multiple training sessions. For a couple of reasons. One, because you may have a unique call. Uh, you, you might get that one in 300 call that not everybody is going to have the opportunity to have uh, been a part of, uh, and that's that's just normal in, in the in the rescue business. That we want to make sure everybody is understanding, hearing what we did, why we did it, um, and what the uh, advanced level provider, whether it be an AEMT or a paramedic why they did what they did with the conditions or the condition of the patient at hand. So I think that is, uh, that is excellent ways of real life passing on what we did well, what we could have done better, uh, what we may have you know, done improperly. So over that period of time, yeah, we, we own up to our mistakes for sure uh, or own up to our ways of doing things better. We identify it, 
we fix it and we move on. And we make sure that everybody else within the agency has learned from this. The safety bulletins are a combination of those, a combination of uh, what Prescott just mentioned with something that's going on in the country and, uh, and or even locally. I mean, with some of the uh, the most recent civil disturbances uh, around the country, as well as locally, you know, we, we've wanted to identify how we protect ourselves, protect the patients, protect the people we're sworn to protect safely uh, and, and working in those environments. I think it's important that we as an, as an agency or any provider, whether you're fire, EMS, law enforcement, it doesn't matter who you are, when we're providing a service that We've got to do a couple things. We've got to be able to recognize when we do things that may not have been done correctly for a variety of reasons. Uh, and there's extenuating circumstances that are always there. And one of the things before any of us should start uh, pointing fingers and the typical firehouse banter of they screwed this up, they should have done this. They don't know until you actually talk to the providers. And one of the things that I am, I am big on is before... I will even second guess anybody on any type of scenario or situation is go to, the, go to the truth. Find out exactly what happened, what they were faced with, and then you may find out that they did exactly everything they should have according to the protocol. And that's the other thing is the protocol. We have protocols we have to follow. We have protocols that are mandated by the state, by the district. And more times than not, the member is doing exactly that. And it may not be what everybody else thinks, but it's they did it correctly. So you got to find out the truth. you got to find out from the people there um, before you start pointing fingers. Having said that, it's still a great opportunity to every once in a while be able to sit back as a provider individually, as an agency, as a squad, as a whatever, and say, we could have done this better. We And, and not... Um, just let it float away, but to train on it, get better at it. Um, anybody that's been in this business for any amount of time at all, uh, Phoenix Fire Department uh, is probably one of the more notable fire departments in this country through uh, the, 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 the late uh, Ellen Brunacini, who would always, always, if they did some, they made a mistake and did something incorrectly that resulted in a bad outcome, they would, they would tell everybody and they would video. Uh, and send it out for everybody to learn. And I don't think we should be hesitant to do that. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes we have to lick our wounds, but we have to get better. Yeah, that's a really good point. Prescott, one of the things that I always admired about you when we were working together is anything you expected me to do, I felt comfortable that you would do it correctly. And I think that goes a long way. I know with both of you, I've been a subordinate training. I've also assisted you guys in training. And something that I feel like all three of us has, have in common is making sure that whoever's delivering the training comes from a background of credibility, not only with certifications and pieces of paper saying they know the stuff, but it makes a big difference to me if someone's asking me to do something and I can't do it, if they can pick up the tool and do it, do it correctly. Um, my question for you is, how do you balance being a really good provider and making sure that you're making good decisions in your personal career and then transmitting that to the other people that are going to be training? Is there anything that you know, let's say you have to do a really complex training. You have to do a, you get assigned to do a training that's above your skill level or it's some sort of technical, you know, electrical, high line, safety, repelling from a moving helicopter. How do you go about providing that type of training? Is there any sort of, you know, do you seek out outside resources? Do you, do you work on something before you get there? What's that process look like? Um, so that process has been a learning process for me, first of all, because when I first took over as training coordinator, officer, whatever you want to call it, in Williston, it, it, 
I wanted to teach everything and do everything because I thought that is what the role was. Um, and then I realized we had a couple of technical trainings that I thought would be really good to bring to the, to the troops. Um, and I realized very quickly that I was no amount of, you know, scrolling through even days or weeks before, uh, PowerPoints or the internet was going to help me become the expert needed to teach, um, the firefighters and EMTs, what they needed to know. So at that point, I immediately transitioned over to getting in touch with people who um, are subject matter experts, experts in their particular craft. And what that did was it it put me into a position to be able to observe, um, you know, the, the boots on the ground firefighters and how they were doing, uh, but it also allowed um, other folks to come in and, and, and sort of teach us uh, their craft in, in the best way possible. Um, so I guess and this is going to touch a little bit on what Chief Ruggles just said, but I guess being humble and recognizing the fact that one person does not know it all. The statement, you know, uh, jack of all trades, master of none comes to mind. Um, we definitely need to come as close to mastery as we can, which is sets and reps, getting at it, absolutely doing it. But we also have to be humble enough to acknowledge that we will not be uh, master of the many, many disciplines that the fire service and emergency medical services require. Yeah, I think one of the unique times I saw that in practice was we did a ventilation drill recently, and I remember the tower guys kind of being encouraged to take more of an active role in the teaching, which was really cool to see that, because I'm sure it could have been really easy for you to just pick up the saw and lecture everybody on how to do it and just put the saw in the roof and just tell everyone that's how to do it, and you just, you know, you teach your thing and everybody listens, and then they all go home an hour later. But what I saw is you interacting with the tower lieutenant and then encouraging the tower lieutenant to work with all the other providers, and it put those people in a position where they could feel empowered because it's their truck, they have those saws, they're their saws, and they start getting engaged as the people who are traditionally expected to do that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about, let's say, um, you know, you have to do an engine company drill. How do you go about engaging other people and putting them in an empowerment role where they can deliver a high-quality product instead of just showing up and teaching everything yourself? You recognize their abilities, you recognize their talents, you recognize their experience. Um, and I think you need to give them that opportunity to pass on their craft. Firefighters are good uh, about wanting to pass along to the other firefighters, the younger firefighters, the newer firefighters, what they know. And I think you've got to give them the opportunity to be able to do that. With that, you have to allow them to do it their way. If, if you identify, I've always tried to identify the objective. Here's what we need to complete. Um, here's how we need to do it uh, safely. But now incorporate your skill, your talents, what, what you've learned, and do that. And not interrupt them, not, not stop them. Allow them to do their thing. And then if you need to correct that, do it quietly, not in front of everybody, because there's a pride factor. And when you give, when you empower the member, um, that does a couple things. It, it gives them um, recognition of, of their rank within the company, which is huge, which is what we have them there for. We expect this lieutenant, captain, senior firefighter to go off at a fire at a moment's notice and be able to go to the roof and do that ventilation. So why shouldn't I be able to rely on them in a training environment to do the same thing? So I think you have to empower them and trust them um, and, and give them that leeway. You have to let them, let them do it, let them do their thing.
That's a really good point. Prescott, I just want to go to you quickly. Um, looks like you have, do you have something you want to add there? I just the only thing that is really that you just hit on, Chief, that um, not only is everything what you just said very important, but also the the crawl and then walk and then run theory and having that be a process that occurs. If if you had a lieutenant just jump right into roof ventilation with you know, an actual barrel fire underneath it. So you're getting real smoke and you've, you know, you're wearing full PPSCBA, you're up onto a pitched roof, what have you. Um, and that is the first evolution you're sending this company through um, that could spell safety issues or, or, you know, injury of anything like that. If you crawl, right? If you start off with on the ground, just talking through stuff, and then you see if, if that goes really well, the officer, the senior firefighter, whoever's leading this training has done really well with the crawling stage, then absolutely, they're going to they're gonna cruise into the walk stage, um, do even better, because they're building upon not only their own training they just did at the crawl stage, but they're seeing how the, the folks that they're training did with that, so they know when to, you know, a crawl can be a really fast crawl. It doesn't have to be a super slow crawl. Uh, and then obviously that run phase, which is something I think we miss a lot of, um, I know in our shop, we often miss that run phase, um, because we are, are almost in some cases too sensitive of, of like, oh, wow, that run phase is going to mean we're going to have to don full PPE and get really physically into whatever this evolution is. Um, when in reality, that run phase is often exactly where we need to be. And the sooner we can get there with doing the, uh, the crawling and walking first, um, the, I think the better off for the more realistic training. Yeah, so we'll we'll go to you, Prescott. I have a I have a I'd like your opinion on this. So let's say you're offering a training. Let's say it's something simple like forcing a door. You're gonna obviously have certain members of your organization that are pretty comfortable with that, and they could force a door pretty rigorously for a while. You could put a bunch of wood in there. You could do whatever you got to do, and no matter how difficult you make it, even if they can't get the door open, they're pretty excited and interested in trying it, and they'll get all sweaty and their gear will get stinky and all that stuff. And you might have somebody else who gets discouraged really easily and gets really tired really quickly and isn't using the tool correctly and then becomes frustrated when you try to assist them. How do you develop a training where both of those groups can get something out of the training? Oof, that is a tough question, but a really, really good one. Uh, because when you identify the go-getters, um, you can't just let them shine. You, I mean, you can, you should, you should, you know, encourage that. But at the same time, if you let them shine and then the, the folks who are uh, maybe having struggling a little bit, um, they will just sink further back into the periphery until they don't exist, and then they're gonna the training will end, and they will not have gained any benefit from that. Um, so I think the two options is one to you you have to bring those people up and make that initial attempt to you know see what you can do to guide them through that process. Um, lessening the training, making it ever so slightly easier, one wooden jam versus two kind of thing can help a little bit, but the reality of it is um, at the end of that training, what you may have to do is take that person aside and do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one stuff. So you're, again, Chief Ruggles had talked about the pride thing. You, The last thing you want to do is have this person go further into um, their own brain of thinking, I can't do this because they can do it and it is in their brain. All they have to potentially do is just get at it and do it again and again and again, but maybe not in that group setting, um, which again, it's, it's very tough to differentiate. You know, When we have on-call staff and career staff all meshed together and both on-call and career folks within those two categories have different levels of skill as well, 
that is a really large challenge. But if we, if I, like I have in some cases, identified a person who might need some of that coaching um, on the side or down the road, they have been receptive to that and come in later. That makes a lot of sense. So Chief, I just want to move to you here. Same type of topic. Let's say you have an individual who really excels at something, they do really well at it, and another individual in the same group is really struggling. What kind of processes do you enact to try to help bring that gap a little bit closer? I was talking to a lieutenant recently and they were describing this Christmas tree of competency. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about that. Basically, you have the the star angel that's at the top that's always going to be the best of the best and that person may rotate depending on who trains and who does whatever. You're going to have the center of the tree, which is going to be people who are pretty competent and the bottom of that Christmas tree is the minimum competent you expect. So the vast majority of people are in the center of that tree there. And then you have the STEM, which is going to be a very small minority of groups that are consistently not making the minimum standard. So how do you develop a training and bring that tree so that the majority of people are above the minimum competency? And the last question is, what should a minimum competency be? What does that look like? Well, I think to answer the first part is you're always going to have that Christmas tree that has different stars and different topics, as you mentioned. And I think uh, that's okay. I think in every organization, you're going to have that, that type of, of distribution of, of skill sets. And they need to recognize that. Uh, the members need to recognize that. But I think we, uh, the department, and we as an individual have to be held accountable. So there is a minimum standard set. There is a minimum standard that's identified, whether it be through NFPA, through pro board certifications, or from the department that say we have to be uh, capable at this minimum level. So you hold those people to that minimum level. Are there always going to be people that excel? Yes. Those become your teachers. Those become the, one, the ones that can mentor that, that individual uh, in getting better. But here's the thing. Uh, you have to recognize those people that want to get better. And this is, I don't care if it's forcible entry or starting an IV. Uh, you have to recognize those that ones that want to, that can look themselves in the mirror, be proud of who they are, what they're doing, and know that they're providing a good level of care and service uh, to the people we're sworn to protect. And then as an agency, we identify and, uh, you know, those that may be weak in certain areas, put them at, match them up with one of those mentors uh, hold the uh, hold the company officer in some cases accountable to keeping their people. But what I found that works is when you hold the individual accountable to a particular skill and you challenge them and make them tell you that they are competent, a lot of times they will do their best when they are putting their word to you know to it that they are. Again, they don't have to be the best. Um, they have to be competent. And I think you do have standards, and I think you do. We do, uh, as you're, uh, well, hopefully aware, skill, you know, skill stations, and we just we set up a series of different skills that each member should be able to do. Some can do it quick. Some can do it not as quick. But you don't stand over them. You say, here is the task. Here is the objective. Move around with your company. Let your company and the people within your company assist you to get it done, to get it completed, to become competent, and let them be their own, uh, their own judge. And I think that's very helpful. So at some point in time, you may have more than one star at the top of the tree, or you may have those bulbs that every once in a while fall off, but uh, can get picked up and helped by another, by another member. 
Yeah, you just don't want to step on them. You can cut your feet. You got to be careful. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. So, Prescott, I want to go to you quick here. So, if you have an organization that's in charge of training, and we worked at the same organization, so we know individuals and like Whitney King, another shout out to you. I know you don't listen to EMS podcasts, but I'll continue to do it until you listen. Um, I know what Whitney King always says is it's a different circus, same clowns, right? And I've experienced that in many departments or there's a lot of the similar personalities. So, and this is going to be for Chief Ruggles and, uh, and Prescott here. So, when you're leading a training and you look in the back of the room and you got the person that's on their phone that's not paying attention, it's obvious, you know, they go to the bathroom six times in a 10-minute lecture and they don't want to engage and every time you put a skill drill in front of them, they're at the back of the group or they get a phone call or they walk down to the kitchen or they get a coffee and kind of everybody knows that they're avoiding it. How do you engage that person in a way where they're not going to just turn into a giant porcupine and start shooting quills all over the place? If they were going to the bathroom six times in a lecture, I would check them for a UTI or something like that. <laughs> you got to I mean, make sure they're okay. First. Medically speaking, you would want to make sure That's they're good, okay. That's a good point. So we definitely always want to make sure everyone's okay. So. Oh, for sure. No, so, so, so they are okay. They do not have a UTI. But let's continue the scenario. So you're working with them, and they're avoiding the training. You know it. They know it. Yeah. What do you do? I think the first thing, um, and Dave, a shout-out to one of the previous podcast guests dave would laugh if he heard me say this but um we have to treat and remember that these folks are human beings and so at the end of the day um why we have to ask ourselves why why are they the wallflower why do they not want to participate in this and what i've found is a lot of times it's because they don't believe that they can do the skill they are nervous that they just will not be able to do the skill or more importantly they might think they can do the skill but they don't want to do it in front of their peers in front of their coworkers for fear of failure so i guess the 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 question then would be how do we take those individuals and reduce that fear. What can we as training officers, what can we as members of a, of a department and agency do to reduce that fear? And I think that is a, a much larger question than I am prepared to answer tonight. But what I will say is I think one of the most important things is once we've identified that as the reason that they are sinking back into the periphery, um, instead of because this actually happened to me once, instead of calling that person out and grabbing a hold of them and saying, do the skill, get at it, um, that scarred me for life, actually. Um, instead of doing that, maybe what you can do is either, like I said earlier, pull them aside on a one-on-one -on -one basis or just encourage them within the group, um, you know, have it be from the very outset um, that you've created a culture of acceptance and knowing that we are all on the same page and then that failure is acceptable in training because at the end of the day, Failure in training is going to prepare you. It is the only thing that will prepare you for the real deal, right? If we, um, you know, I use ground ladders as an example because it's something that I've uh, had a passion for very recently. If I ever, ever, ever dropped a ground ladder before um, in, in other people's eyes, uh, that would have been the end of my career, basically. They would have just ostracized me and called me the stupidest firefighter ever. Now, under different circumstances, I feel much better about the ability to, do I want to drop a ladder? No, absolutely not. But if I do, I acknowledge the fact that I have, I darn well better have learned something from that. Uh, and so I guess to answer your question in a very long-winded approach, foster that culture of acceptance and understand where people are coming from before we jump down the typical firefighter route, which again, Chief Ruggles had talked about before, which is we eat our young. 
That's a really good perspective. Chief, you have something to add there? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've used in, in, in different aspects of training where you do have that, because there have been occasions in, well, I guess everybody still has them. doesn't matter what part of their career they're in, that they don't want to be the first one, right, for fear of embarrassment, of doing it wrong, saying it wrong, performing it wrong. And what I've done uh, as, as an instructor, when you, when you identify that person, and sometimes they're pretty easy to, to pick out, is you'll be the first one to do it, and maybe you'll be the first one to make the mistake, the simple mistake, to kind of take the pressure off everybody else. Hey, I'm here. I did it. Look, I can make mistakes, but here's how I'm learning to correct it, and then engage them. And if you can identify them, again, without putting them on the spot, you don't want to make it worse, but kind of say, hey, come on up here and give me a hand and, 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 and kind of get them involved. And once, in a lot of cases, once you can get through there, the, that will help them engage. That might help them get through and relax them uh, and, and make, it, make it a productive thing. That's a great point. And I know you both are pretty, you guys are pretty high up there. And just from a junior guy's perspective, I will tell for any of you officers that are listening, chiefs, whoever, you guys are in a position of leadership and you know, you're worried about going into the gym and working out. You don't want someone to see you sweaty. You know, you don't want to go down to the fire ground. You don't want to try an, an EMS thing or whatever. I promise you, the people that I look up to the most are the leaders that I have that are willing to fail in front of me to learn better. The person, the lieutenant or the captain that's able to say, hey, you know, I couldn't get the CPAP set up. I didn't know how to do that. And I know you're a paramedic or you're the ambulance guy. Can you show me how to do that so I can help you better? I ha I'll, I'll sit there all night and help that person recognize that. What is worse is that person shifting blame onto somebody else and pretending like they don't need to do it. And I'm a lieutenant. I don't need to know EMS. You're my EMS guy. You failed. You did that. Shifting blame away from everybody just separates the gap further. Because if you have a problem and you go to someone else, especially if a superior person seeks a little bit of input from a junior person in, an, in a more private setting, not on an EMS call, not in a, a public view, that does two things. One, it's going to show that that officer or that that uh, superior has some humility, which goes a long way with the troops. And two, it's going to provide the opportunity to empower that junior person to give that officer and show how confident they are and teach them something and empower them to want to be part of the team. And it's going to just create a tighter bond. The best officers I've ever worked for are not afraid to ask for help when they need it. And I'm not saying they need to do that, you know, in the middle of a gigantic, raging, you know, triple bagger structure fire, but maybe something simple <coughs> like asking to help set up the CPAP, you know, that can go a long way with people. And I don't think I've ever felt like an officer has been weak for asking for my help. I don't think that's ever been a case. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much. Um, we had a good discussion, I think. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to be here. Prescott's uh, got something else to add. So go ahead, Prescott. I just, I'm so sorry. This is dragged down long enough. But the last <laughs> thing I just really, because it's something that I have found and it, it is something that I just wanted to say to any listener who might uh, tune in uh, to this at any point in time. Um, at your agencies, fire, fire-based EMS, uh, EMS only, whatever it is, if you are not getting quality training, if you are not getting the training that you think um, you need to you know, perform at your level or something like that, um, then a couple different things. First of all, go seek that out elsewhere. There are, there are plenty of conferences um, and, and educators out there willing to, to help out even in and around the New England area. Sometimes it can be tough if financially or for whatever reason your agency won't send you that kind of thing. The other thing I want to encourage people to do is get out there and begin doing it yourself. Okay, so I know that's that's hard because you want to have education come from other people to make sure you're doing it right. But from a firefighting perspective, if you're not good at ladders or you need work on the engine, 
um, you know, pulling hand lines, things like that. Get out there and do it, even if you are doing it alone, because there's a reason you're not getting that quality training. It might be because folks aren't willing to come join you. If you are out there day after day doing it, starting IVs on the IV arm, uh, working to set up that CPAP, throwing ladders against the side of your fire station, whatever it is you're doing, if you keep at it, people will begin to see that. They will begin to, to question that or envy that, and they will eventually join you and begin doing it with you. So that is just the last little tidbit because I have seen that in numerous people, numerous different agencies, and, and that is just something I, I hope that people can, can take from this. Yeah, you can only drink chocolate milk by yourself in the cafeteria for so long. Somebody's going to sit next to you. There's just not enough spots, so they're going to they're gonna be friends with you. So I want to thank you, gentlemen, so much for being here. Um, as always, in every episode, we want to just close the episode. You guys have been there. You've done that. Do you have any tips for someone who's new? Someone's coming up through the ranks. They're ambitious. They're hungry. They want to get better. Fire EMS, fire-based EMS, airline pilot, whatever you have it, they want to get better. They want to learn. They want to excel. Give them your 10-second tips to success for training. Chief Ruggles, 10 seconds. Uh, make every day a training day. Uh, never stop learning. Listen to those around you, specifically the ones that have come before you, and listen to their experiences and their lessons learned. That's a great point. Prescott, 10 no. seconds. Uh, so my 10 seconds is find yourself a mentor. Uh, and that mentor does not necessarily need to come from within your agency. And think big on that, okay? You can have more than one mentor. If you, if possible, keep a mentor locally. Um, but then think big on that too because finding one or two or a few people who you can really uh, uh, look back on and inspire you to do more each and every day uh, is going to serve you well in the long run. Great points. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you.